This morning we're reading from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. we come to you this morning. Um, God's so very grateful uh, for your son Christ. And God, I would pray that uh, that would be the praise and the name and the majesty that is, uh, that, that's on our lips when we leave here today. It's in our hearts when we leave here today. And Father, we ask as we, uh, as we move into the word, Father, first of all, God, you would humble me under this word, that you, would, uh, that you would take over authority, that you would take every word, every breath that is spoken this morning, God, and use it to bring dead hearts to life, to bring renewal where, where hearts are needing renewal, to bring healing, to bring salvation, to bring hope, to bring, pre, to bring peace. Father, we, we love you, uh, and we would ask that this time of um, worship, that this time of uh, gleaning from your word and seeing you in the scriptures would just uh, pull us closer to you through your son Christ, uh, for your name, and for your glory, and for our good. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we will be, obviously, in John chapter 9. You guys uh, saw where Trent had read that, um, that text. Um, and let me just kind of catch you up on the context of where this is coming from. So um, there's been this feast, uh, this festival that's been going on for the last seven days in, in Jerusalem, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and this was something that was prescribed way back in Leviticus. And show, so the, the, the Jews would observe this annually. Uh, and this was one of the greatest uh, parties that they would throw for a seven-day period. And it was to remember uh, all that God uh, did to deliver them uh, in the wilderness in, that in their time of wandering uh, back in the Exodus. Um, so that's where they're at, and they're celebrating all the, the components, the, pres the prescriptions for this festival, remembering all that God done. Um, and one one uh, writer, Jewish uh, writer, uh, said that no one knows true joy unless they've been part of this festival. Like, you, don't, you haven't really even seen joy until you've seen how this festival goes down. So it was a great time. They were, uh, they were having a really good time. Uh, and, and Jesus was kind of there with his people, and ever so often, he would just kind of interject some stuff into their festival and just mess their whole world up. Uh, he would say some things, and they were like, wait, what? Uh, you know, he would just kind of stand up and say, um, I, I'm, I'm living water, and if anyone thirsts, you can come to me and drink, and, and you will be filled, and you'll be satisfied. 
Um, and this was happening during a very important time in this, this festival where uh, they were focused on a water offering, and he stood up in the middle of that and interjected. Uh, and then, then another uh, part of this festival was that night they would light up the temple to a point where the whole, the whole city of Jerusalem would be uh, glowing with the lights from this temple. And he would just stand up and say, I'm the light of the world. Uh, and, and so he would, have, he would go through that. And so by the time they get to the end of this festival, everybody is just in shambles. They're, they're frustrated with Jesus. He's been saying some things. He's been offending them. Uh, and now we're at a, at a point uh, uh, the, where we f- we're just going to pick up the verse where we left off last week in chapter 8, verse 59. If your Bible is right there, it's just a verse right up. Here's how it ended, and here's where we're going today. It ended with, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So that's where we're picking up today. They're ready to kill Jesus. That's how frustrated they've become. He's said some things. He, uh, as far as they're concerned, he's been blasphemous. He's, he's been calling himself God, the son of God. And, and they're like, man, man, we know where you come from, man. You, you know, you're, you're Mary and Joseph, maybe Joseph's son. We don't know. Like she just, she got pregnant out of wedlock and like there's all these other issues. So, we, you know, you're crazy is basically what they were saying. And so today we, we're picking up, and if you look at verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. So he, walks, he, he just walks away from this, um, and, and, and it's very important understanding that he, he's leaving a place where they want to stone him. They want to kill him. They want him, him dead. And I want you to understand that he passes a blind man. This is a grueling punishment, a man blind from birth. He's never seen a sunrise right? This guy has never, uh, he's never received any type of formal education because uh, he can't read. Uh, at some point, uh, he was abandoned by his parents. And, and he's also abandoned by society. He's been pushed to the margins. And now he survives solely on begging, sitting on the side of the road, sitting in the dirt. And Jesus walks up and it says, he saw a man blind from birth. Imagine the torment that this man has endured up to this point. A grown man who's been blind from birth, has never seen anything, has, has never been able to, to catch a glimpse of, of God's beauty. And, and the, the most profound thing that I saw in that verse was that Jesus saw him. Like Jesus noticed him. So many things happening around Jesus and his, and his boys, right? And, and he's walking out of the temple and he notices as a guy who everyone else passes by. No one pays attention to this guy. We're going to see the only level of attention that he gets in our scripture. I want you to know that God doesn't ignore suffering. He doesn't ignore suffering. He notices our suffering, and he draws near to our suffering. And so we have this situation now, like we had in John chapter 5. If you remember when we were there, Jesus walks into this place. Um, and it's, it's a place called Bethesda, and it's a pool, and there's this lame man, and they have this superstitious uh, religious idea that when the waters are stirred, that's angels coming down from heaven to stir the waters, and it would make the pool a healing place. And if you were the first one in the water, then you could be healed. And this lame man had no friends. He had no family. He had no community around him, and he couldn't get to the pool first to get healed. And so Jesus walks up, and he says, the first thing it says is he noticed him. He noticed the man, right? Among everything that's going on in in the place, uh, crowds just mounting, right? Lots of people around. And Jesus walks in and notices suffering. And he draws near to suffering. He has a lot going on and he notices this man. And so not only does he he notice him, but he actually approaches him. He actually, okay, I'm not just going to walk by and say, oh, 
I feel sorry for that guy and keep moving. He notices it and he approaches the man. He, he goes to the man rather than moving away from him. And I don't know where you're at in your life right now, but that brings me a lot of hope, knowing that, knowing that Jesus sees my pain, that he sees my doubt, that he sees my anxiety, that he sees my depression, that Jesus sees my foolish attempts at trying to get to be well-liked for man to like me, to see my rampant idolatry like Jesus sees me and all of that. And that brings me hope. And he moves toward me, not away from me when he sees that. And he moves toward you wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, he moves toward you in that, not away from you. He draws near. And so these past two weeks, We've been reading as a church family. We're reading through the scripture over two years. We've been in Exodus. Like we opened up Exodus in the last two weeks. We've been uh, reading through that. And can I just say, man, over the last probably month, the scriptures that we've been, we've been reading as a family have been so relevant, so relevant to everything that's going on in our society, around us, in our church family, personally, and even today. Like as I'm, as I'm going through our, our text this week and studying and preparing, I'm like, I'm just recalling everything that we read over the last two weeks. It's like, Wow. You know, and so we've been there, and you recall 430 years of slavery. That the Israelite people were, were, were enslaved to the Egyptians for 430 years, and the book opens up, and God's wanting to deliver them. These people who had been abused, who were hungry, who, who struggled through sickness, who struggled through genocide. They were wanting to kill all of the firstborn, the Egyptians were, of the firstborn sons, and so, like, they were struggling through all of this. And so I don't know about you, but if I was in that, if I was in that place, I, perhaps I would ask, God, do you see what's going on? Do you notice me? Can you notice what's happening? Like we're supposed to be your people, and here's where we are. We're enslaved. We have nothing. We don't have any land. We don't have any possessions, and we're enslaved, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so I don't think the Israelite people are too far off when, when the scriptures say they would cry out to their Lord saying, have you forgotten us? And in the midst of all of that grief and all of that suffering and the sadness and the anger that probably comes with all of that, the doubt, Exodus 3 would say this, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I know their sufferings. I hear them. I notice them. I know their sufferings. And Jesus, God in the flesh, does not run from suffering. He doesn't run from it. He sees it. He draws near to it. And he will even enter into it and partake of it for our redemption. He will take on suffering willingly so that we might be redeemed. Because we could never pay that price. Never pay the price for what we've done, the rebellion and the rejection and the sin. Christ had to do that for us. And there are so many stories, man, just even in our church of pain, in our world, in our community, in our church of pain and suffering and hurt and stories of, of grief over marriages that have burnt to the ground or marriages that are near burning to the ground. Like there's, there's stories of that. There's stories of, of loss over loved ones. Of families who want children and don't know if it'll ever happen. Disappointment over your past. Trying to make ends meet financial crisis in the home. Like all of these things. 
And I just want to, I hope that today this is a promise to you that God is not blind to your circumstance. God sees you. He sees you in your suffering. He sees you in your hurt, in your grief, in your pain, in, in your loss. He sees you in that. And so it's not just in our text, but it's all over Scripture, all over the promises of God that He's aware of our sadness. Like He's aware of grief and anxiety and heartache. And look how this encounter would unfold, okay? So this guy's blind on the side of the road, right? And it says, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I had to tell you, with that verse this week, I had to pray for my anger to come down often this week. With that verse, and I, and I hope, I, hope I'll get to sh- kind of give you a glimpse of why that is. Because that's not an extraordinary question for first century Judaism. Uh, it was believed that every sin could be traced back to something that that person had, had done or that that person's parents had done. It was believed. And so that was a common question asked when they would see suffering or, or someone who was uh, in pain or lost or died or whatever. They would always uh, try to tie it back to a particular sin. This uh, made it very easy to walk by a blind beggar without compassion. Made it very easy to do that, to walk by and say, I justify him in his suffering. I don't, I don't have to show him compassion. Let me see, what could he have done to get him there so that I don't have to engage it, that I don't have to deal with the problem? I can come up with some kind of summary as to why he's in that situation. It's his fault. Yes, sin did bring suffering into the world. Jesus wouldn't deny that. He didn't deny that here. All of Scripture teaches that the world was broken by sin, and now suffering and death are the result of it. Like the Bible teaches that, Jesus affirms that, nor is he denying that sometimes, sometimes you might even be able to point to a specific sin that causes suffering, right? Like it's, some of you have experienced this, right? Someone has sinned against you, and you pack around hurt and pain and anguish that likely you'll pack for the rest of your life. You could tie it directly to a certain sin, right? So he's not saying that it never happens. What he's communicating here is that just because a person's suffering, like just because someone's hurt doesn't mean there's always a specific sin that brought that about. In fact, usually it's, it, it can't be traced back to something particular, right? And so the disciples here really, I, I mean, this is the part where I would just really get kind of hung up. Like they didn't really care at all what sin this guy did that got him in this situation. They could care less whether a specific sin brought about this man's troubles and suffering or not. What they wanted to do was shirk their responsibility. They wanted to wash their hands of it, and they didn't want to show any compassion, and they wanted to point out a reason why that man deserved what he got. And so I don't have to show any compassion now, so let's do it in the form of a theological discussion. Let's, be, let's get smart about it. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's have a discussion about it. What does Scripture say? What does the Bible say about this? All the while... There's, there's a man blind from birth in the dirt begging. And so what we witness here is the great theological tragedy that I believe many still commit today. We still commit, we still do this today, that we miss the entire point of our theology, right? Theology being the study of God, studying God's ways and studying his word and who he is, his attributes. Like we miss the point Often, because the point of theology is not to gather more information about God. 
That's a process of theology, understanding God and gathering information. But the point of theology, the point of studying God is worship. It's to see God as he is truly in all of his attributes so that our hearts would just overflow with worship towards him. That's the point. And by exploring and experiencing a God through his word, we're moved by the spirit and the majesty of God to worship him. To be in awe of who he is. To stand before him speechless because of who he is. All of your Bible reading and studying, they're meant to leave you in awe of God. That's the point. Not just an intellectual knowledge about who he is. Not just more information about who he is. And worship, and here's, here's, where we, here's where we kind of turn the curve, worship is never isolated from mercy. Worship is never detached from justice. Those two are equal. They go hand in hand. It's never disconnected from compassion. It is never void of kindness, and it always, always in, involves justice. Always. So now that you see how it works, I see God in Scripture as He is, leads me to worship, which is, it overflows in compassion and mercy and justice and kindness and goodness toward my neighbor. That's what loving God and loving my neighbor, that's why they're so closely connected. They're interwoven. You can't even separate the two. And so true worship, here's the deal. True worship should never lead you and I standing over a blind guy, theorizing about how he became blind. Our worship should never lead us to having a theological debate about a blind guy sitting over on the road, all the while he's blind sitting on the road. Our worship should lead to compassion and mercy, kindness, love, care, justice. I'm not bashing theology. We embrace here at our church a robust theology so that we don't make up our own God, that we have a true, clear picture of who Jesus is. So I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying sometimes it gets short-circuited. And when that happens, we need to recognize it and, and repent. And what I see all too often is that we look at Jesus in Scripture, and our only response is a theological discussion or a theological debate. Well, let's read Scripture and let's talk about it and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll get out of here and we'll see you next week. Like that's, a, that's a great tragedy. It's good, but it's short-circuited. I'm certain that a clear glimpse of Jesus would lead us instead to worship and compassion. I'm, I'm sure of it. And in addition to these guys having all the wrong responses about this blind guy, like on top of that, they were looking for an easy answer. Right? They were looking for the easy answer out of it. They want to be able to point to this guy and lay out the cause and the effect. Right? We, can, we, can, we can get this framed up in our minds right. We can explain it away. This guy did this and it caused this. No duh, right? Like that, that's what they're trying to get at. And I'll tell you this, just a confession, I get stuck here often. Right? I want a theology that is detached from real pain, that is detached from real people, that is detached from real problems. Because it, it makes it easy on me, Right? And so I'm guilty of this, and it's wrong. And that's what these guys are after. And Jesus, he would respond differently. You can almost feel Jesus just kind of moving into this, into this situation, like walking towards this guy as he answers the disciples. As they, as they ask this question, 
It's almost like he's not even going to miss a beat. He's moving to this guy as he answers the question, and he says, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's our hope. There's our hope. So we, we're not going to sit here and talk about good things will come to good people, and if you do bad things, bad things happen. Like that's a bunch of garbage. And it says right here that this man was born by birth blind this way, and it was done so that God might have a story to tell. And that's where he's at. And Jesus responds by saying that this isn't some cause and effect scenario going on here, guys. Y'all need to cool it, and we're not going to have this conversation about it. You can't simply explain everything away. You can't simply just kind of come up with a conclusion and say, well, that's truth, so let's move on down the road now. This guy deserves what he gets. God in his sovereignty and in his mystery and his wisdom is doing something in broken and bad situations. And that will be a catalyst for this guy's worship and for other worship. It's going to be a catalyst for that. The most important and loving thing that I can tell you today. If you, if you don't walk away with uh, anything else, walk away with these two things. Uh, that sometimes suffering is given to you as a gift from God so that the works of him might be displayed in you. That's one big truth you need to take away. And the second big truth is it's not about you. It's not about you. And so when you sit in suffering or you see someone sitting in suffering, you want to make it about you or make it about me. And it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about this blind man. Like, that's not even the story. It's here. God's using the story, but it's, that's not the end of the story. You and I are not the highest affection of God. You and I are not the highest affection of God. I know that might land on you like a, like a brick, right? But I want to kind of go there for just a second. Here's the deal. God cannot love you more than he loves himself. Because that's idolatry. That's idolatry for him to love something other than himself because he is God. He is the utmost of his affections. He is. And I know this sounds crazy because the only reference that we might have to someone thinking this highly of themselves, like you think of someone, I know people who think themselves this, like highly of themselves like this. You know what? I don't like them. I don't like being around them. I know, I'm just, I'm just kind of being real with you. Like, that's not attractive to me. And it's not attractive to many people. This narcissism and egotism, like we, that's the only thing we can reference this to, right? And so we're thinking about it, and I'm like, but that don't sound right, right? Like, I don't like people who are stuck on themselves or think of themselves more highly than anything else. But I'm here to tell you that God does. He thinks of himself more highly than anyone else else. And it's true that others, and when we think about that, when we think of uh, a reference to someone we know that's like that, it's true that that is narcissistic. And that is egotistical, right? That is. That's... And there's six months of messages and talks that we can go through to talk about this, but let me just propose this in the form of a question for you just to consider as you leave here today, if you don't think God should seek his own glory, whose glory do you think he should seek? If you don't think that God should be seeking his glory, then whose glory should he be seeking? Yours? Mine? Man, we're all a hot mess. He don't need to be seeking our glory. 
He don't need to put all of his affection and hold us at the highest standard. When you are the creator God and all-knowing and perfect and all-powerful, you better be utmost in your own affections. You better be because there's no one greater and no one higher. So I hope that kind of makes sense for you, that it's not, God's not being an egomaniac when he says, I am my, at my utmost affection, that I hold my glory at the highest level, that it's, it's me that, that, because he's perfect. He is perfect. He is all-knowing. He is God creator, and he is most concerned about his glory because it is from his glory that he judges. It is his, from his glory that he saves and ushers in complete joy and complete satisfaction. So everything that we seek, all of, all of the, 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 the emptiness and the dark spaces that we try to fill things in our heart with in this world can only truly be satisfied in Christ. And, and God has given him to us and said, you believe on my son, let him take your sin away. Let him carry it to the grave and let him transfer his righteousness to you so that you can live in complete joy and complete satisfaction in me. So Jesus is saying there's something bigger going on here, guys. There's something much bigger going on here, much more profound than any silly conversation that you might have right now. That you can't explain it away with just one conclusion about what's going on here. What's going on here is going to go much deeper than you realize. And we were in Exodus. Well, two weeks ago, we were in uh, Exodus chapter 4, and I just recall this verse in verse 11. It said, then the Lord said to him, talking to Moses, as Moses was saying, God, I don't have good speech. I can't talk good. Like, you're sending me the most powerful man in the world to stand before him and, and tell him to do something, to, to give him a command. And I, don't even, I can't even talk straight. I stutter. I don't have good speech. And he says, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Let that sit for just a minute. Sometimes our suffering is a gift from God. Sometimes it's a gift from God. And I want you to see that in his supremacy and authority, God redeems everything, even suffering. Even suffering, he will redeem it. Your tears, they're not wasted. They're not forgotten. Your sickness is not wasted. No loss or hurt is wasted. But he redeems every single bit of it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. For those who love God, everything that has been given to you, good, bad, and different, everything, Scripture says, will work together for good. Will work together for good. And so my hope and my prayer has been and will always be that I never sold you short on the fullness of God. That I never held back from any of the, the truths about Scripture. That I never did hold back Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, where it says God will give you a, a, a season of suffering. That he will give that to you as a gift. I pray that that never happens. That you always get God in his fullness, that you never walk away thinking that Jesus is just a great addition to your, to your life, that he's a wonderful, wonderful source of easy, pain-free living, right? I hope that you never walk away with that understanding, that Jesus is just a and, and, and collect and go, that he's just not a great adder. 
I'd hope that you would know him as the sustainer of every breath in every season of life, whether it is full of joy or whether it is full of pain. I would pray that you would see Jesus as the sustainer. Look at verse 4. It says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now he's on repeat. His CD skipping now. I'm the light of the world. And he's going to keep saying that. And if, you, and if you need to know more information about that, go look at like the last three weeks of sermons and you'll see we've, we've kind of digested that. But here's the deal. I want you to see here the urgency in his voice. You know, you, we must work. We must work while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. Jesus came to work. Jesus came to work, and, and we see he, he includes his disciples in this. He says, I didn't come to work. We, we must work. We're going to do this together. We're doing this all together. And so it happened then, and it's happening even now. That Jesus says, I'm here to work, and, and you're invited. Come along. And it's urgent. Jesus is bringing, a, bringing the light to blind people, and he does it through uh, all kinds of ways, practical ways. Each week we have a team who tutors, right, uh, to, to, to help kids uh, learn uh, and, and help adults get prepared for their GED. Like, we do that, and Jesus is shining a light into that moment. We're working with him. He's doing all these things. We pray over this school. We pray through these halls. We pray together as a, as a group every week. And he is working. He is shining a light in there. We're, we must be working while it is day. And he's doing this through your conversations at work, at school. Like he's shining a light as you, as you have conversations about Jesus with your friends or those who might be far from God. He's doing it in kids' church right now. We have volunteers sweating in there right now because they want your little one to see the light of Jesus because Jesus has invited us into this story. He said, we must work while it is light. Time is of the essence. So we must get busy. And he's doing it even now. And I would hope that through the words that Jesus is speaking to us right now, that he would be shining a light in a dark place right now. Somewhere in your heart, somewhere in your life, I would pray that a light would be shone right now as the gospel is given to you. And so I'm going to try to kind of wrap it up here. We're going to look at verse 6. It says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. I want to see two things right there. The the sovereignty and majesty and authority of Christ and, and man's response to that. And Jesus, Jesus didn't need him to go wash anywhere. Jesus could have healed him and gave him sight right there in front of him. But Jesus says, here's the truth, here's the power, here's the healing, here's my spirit, take a step. All you have to do is believe that what I'm doing is healing you, that I'm giving you physical sight. And so can we agree maybe that this is just a big deal? Like, if, if, can we get on the same page? Like, if you've never seen a sunset before, just imagine this. You've never seen a sunset before. You've never seen a snow-capped mountain before, and all of a sudden you're able to see full color and full light. All of a sudden, having never seen it before. That, imagine how big this is. Like, this is a huge miracle. Miracle. It's a miracle. You know, the, the things that you and I are skeptical of when we hear about them. Right? Today we hear, what, what, what? There must be a bunch of charismatics over there. So what's going on over there? 
Right? We get skeptical when we hear miracle, but this is a miracle. I was able to witness a miracle two weeks ago with my dad, laying paralyzed in a bed, and today he's walking around without even a limp. Miracle. But isn't that the way it goes for us, right? Isn't it the way it goes that anytime you hear of a miracle happening, your first response is skepticism? Hmm, we need to check that out. What, wait a minute. Was that a setup? Did somebody get paid for that? Like that's our first response. Sadly, it, skepticism does come in because it's been invited in by false teachers and false prophets. But it shouldn't be. Like what, what should your response be to this miracle and those that happened today? What should your response be? I'm so glad you asked. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. And look at verse 31 for me. 30 and 31. Let's go there. I'm glad you asked about the miracles and how we should respond to them today. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Miracles, healings, all kinds of things, which are not written in this book because there's not enough there's not enough pages in this book to write all the things that Jesus did in, in, the, in the presence of his disciples. But this one that's written, as well as some others in this book that we've gone through, this one that's written has been given to us so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This guy receiving his sight is huge, but how sad would it be how sad would it be if that was the point of the miracle? If it just ended with this guy having his sight back, that would be a sad day. This miracle and every miracle is pointing to a much greater reality. Much greater reality. This guy wasn't only physically blind, he was spiritually blind. And when we, when we pick this story back up, you'll see that this physical blindness that Jesus came in and spoke life into is going to send him walking towards spiritual life. That it, it, was, it was a means to something greater that God was doing. And that's the point of the miracle, to point us to Jesus. Every miracle, every gift is meant to point us to Jesus. So for something so miraculous, it seems a little bit too simple. For me, it does anyway, right? First of all, it's kind of gross. Like Jesus spit in the mud. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if you've ever spit in the dirt before, but I'm sure one good shot's not going to do it. Like he had to make a mess, you know what I'm saying? Like to get mud to wipe on both of, their, both of his eyes, he had to make a mess right there. And it's like, I can just imagine this blind guy just listening to what's going on. It's like, what's, what's happening? Like, what's fixing to go down here, right? So, you got like, when this happens and Jesus kind of wipes the mud on his eyes, he's like, you got to be kidding me. Like this, I've been, you mean to tell me that you're going to spit in the dirt and make mud and wipe it on my eyes and cure something that I've been packing since birth? You've got to be kidding me. This is not going to be the cure for a lifetime of disability. I promise you that. But doesn't the gospel just seem inadequate? Right? It just seems... It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that it's even a bit ridiculous to me. You know, to, to just listen to it like that's it. That's all. Like I, Jesus has done everything, and I just believe that He's accomplished everything, and and I'm, I belong to Him now. Like that's 
Surely I've got to like give some money away, or surely I've got to go do some good works. I've got to, uh, I've got to pray like nine times a day. Uh, I've got to go to confession. I've got to, surely I've got to do all these things, right? Surely it's not just believe and I'm saved. But it, it's that simple. It's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? That's how God does. That's how he works in his way. So it's, for you and I, it's that simple. Now, Jesus would sit there and wipe mud in his eyes, right? And just whisper, here's your salvation. Here's your healing. Now go and wash. Isn't that amazing? And so the gospel is that simple for you and I. It's that simple. It's, it's showing us a, a crucified man. The gospel shows us a crucified man, a mass of bleeding flesh, barely recognizable as a human, condemned, shamed, rejected, in pain, doomed to die, a man under the wrath of God himself. And the gospel points to him. The gospel points to him and says to all of us, there's the healing in every wound. There's our healing. There's the answer to all of your hopes. And there is the only shot at humanity right there. It's found in him. So would you just look on him and believe? Just look on him and believe. That's how, that's how simple and ridiculous at the same time that it is. That's why it's such good news. Because the bad news is that we are dead and we can't accomplish our own salvation. We can't work ourselves out of it. Someone had to come into our lives to enter into humanity and do that work for us. So that all we do is put our faith in Him and have life and have healing and know that in suffering and in hardships and in persecution and in sickness and in trial and in peril and in hurt and pain and brokenness and darkness that he's, he's with us and that it could possibly even be a gift from him. So let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you in the name of your son Christ Jesus who for our sake uh, became sin, who knew no sin so that in him that we, we might have that same righteousness of God. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for the gift of life, salvation, adoption, giving us a new name, bringing us into your family, making us brothers and sisters in a kingdom that will never perish, that will never fall away, that will never fail. God, we thank you so much that you would even consider us to be partnering with the work of the gospel in our communities and in this world, that you have called us, you have redeemed us, and now you're sending us. Because it's very urgent, Father, that, that we do the, do the work that you've, uh, that you've set up for us beforehand to do. Because night's coming. And nobody can do anything fumbling around the dark. 
So Father, I would pray first that we would see this light, that we would understand, that we would know that Jesus is our only hope, our only means of salvation, our only means at forgiveness, being put back together, having new life, having a new name, and, and having a new purpose. And God, believing on that, having the power through your spirit to go and carry that name into this world, to go speak healing to those who need healing, to go speak hope to those who are hopeless, and to speak grace and mercy to those who feel like they just aren't good enough. We love you, and we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.